I would like to talk about practice and awakening. And first, I like to, in a way, tell a story, but also in order for you to understand the story, I have to tell you a little more about Zen and Koan, but very briefly. That, as we mentioned before, what we do is part of the practice of the koan, which are stories. And within the koan, there is the main point of the koan, which emerge generally as a question, like, what is this? And so in the Chinese tradition and in the Korean tradition, that main point of the koan, of the story, the question, has a name. It's called wadu, watao in Chinese. And wadu in Chinese means actually head, head of speech. So that which is before speech. Because something in Korea, sometimes in Korea what they do is they tell you when they uh, teach you what is this, they say, but before you speak, before you think, what is this? So that's the way they refer to it. So this is why I talk about the wadu, which means head of speech. So now I can tell the story. And the story is about my uh, favorite nun, which now is disease. But when I was in Korea, uh, I was extremely fond of this old nun. And she was very small. And she was very humble, but also she, she had an incredible presence. And she really, what I would call, radiated wisdom and compassion. And I met her in a nunnery, and we got to know each other, and we were really fond of each other. And so she told me her story. And recently it came out into a book. But what was interesting with her story is that it is of, let's say, last century. It's of the 20th century. But it's something which is quite recent. Because when you hear about Zen stories, you generally hear about Zen story in the 6th century or the 9th century, and you think, well, this is a bit far away. But here, there was this person whom I met, whom I knew, and who told me this story, which is very much like this amazing story of, a, of Zen life, of our, all our turbulation and our problem and our practice. And the thing about her is that she was born in a very poor family, a farmer family, and her mother died very young when she was young, and her father was totally devastated by the death of his wife. And then he kind of lost all energy and hope and did not do much. And so they were even poorer, and they really had no hope. They're really extremely poor without any support. And so when she was 18, she kind of thought, she couldn't see any hope in her life. Everything was so wretched that she thought, well, maybe I should kill myself, you know, instead of waiting, you know, to continue with this wretched life. And then at that moment, she had a vision. She had a vision of the Himalayas, which for her represented the Buddha. And then she thought, well, maybe before I kill myself, maybe I could become a nun first. You know, <laughs> try something different. 
So off she go to the nunnery nearby, and she and the nuns find her a little gun. You know, this was in the kind of twenties, thirties. They find her a little small and scrawny, but they say, "Okay, you can come." So they took her in. And but these nuns were not into meditation. So the only thing she did was very similar to what she did at home, which was cleaning, cooking, gathering wood. And she kind of learned the chanting by herself. And after a, a few years of this, she kind of again got a little despondent. You know, I mean, either all there is to this life, you know, I mean, doesn't seem very different from before. And then a monk came, a great monk came to a monastery nearby. And in his talk, he said, the role of a monk and a nun is to practice and to awaken for the sake of all. And then she thought, well, that's what I have to do. I want to do this. You know, I am a nun. I want to practice. I want to meditate. I want to awaken. And so she went to see her elder and said, I am going off to practice, you know, under this master. And the elder did not want to let her go, but she kind of, you know, kind of uh, fast, she said, you know, if she would not let her go, then she would kind of stop eating and things like that. So she let her go. So she arrives in this place where there is this uh, nunnery where they practice meditation like we do here, three months at a time, ten hours a day, and she thinks it's paradise. And next there is this monastery with this Zen master who gives great talks and who talks about various wadus, various questions. And so she hears the talk and she practices and then she thinks, I would like to have my own wadu. And I would like the master to give me my own wadu, my own head of speech. So one day she gathers her courage and she goes up the mountain and she goes to see the master. So she enters the room and the master is sitting like this. And she enters the master, master, and she bows three times. And she says, please, master, give me a wadu. Give me a head of speech. And the master just sit there. Ten minutes pass, twenty minutes pass, and he still sits there. And, and, and she starts to think, well, maybe he doesn't give me a wadu because I'm small, I'm scrawny, <laughs> or, you know, you know, you know, and she's really kind of, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, starting to really kind of uh, worry and become anxious. And then she thought, well, he's not really, you know, I am too bad. He's not going to give me anything. So she's going to get up and to give up. And he looked at her and he kind of, you know, he shouted. Since you don't know where is the head of the tail, what kind of head are you talking about? You don't even know where the head is or the tail is. What kind of head of speech do you want? What do you know about it? What is this head you want? And she kind of gets this here as this kind of great doubt. And so she kind of rushes out and, and she's kind of like, head, tail, what is this head of speech? And so she kind of little kind of in turmoil, this kind of, questioning in a way. And then she goes with her teacher to a nunnery to practice. And she's very happy to go with her teacher. So she 
this is a non-teacher. So she goes off. But she's a bit worried that he had not given her a wadu, that she still want a wadu for herself. And then she gets to that nunnery, and there is a little monastery nearby, and there is a monk, the abbot, and she meets the abbot, and she does the same with the abbot. She said, oh, please, master, you know, I would like a wadu. Can you give me one? And then the abbot tells her, but I mean, you were with Mango, the great master. I mean, if you did not get a wadu from him, you know, I mean, you know, I should not give you one, really. And then she's kind of again, oh, I mean, why don't they give me a wadu, you know? And what's the matter with me? And what can I practice like everybody else? And in a way, there is this kind of doubt within her which works. And she has to start the three months retreat. So she starts the three months retreat. And she sits there and she has all these questions kind of bubbling inside her. And at the same time, she has this great determination. So she sits and she sits with this question, why don't they give me a wadu? And what is this wadu about? And what about this head? And what about this tail? And then she starts to become more and more quiet and more and more clear. And actually, she said, she she gets into a state where she doesn't need to sleep. And so she just sits there, day and night. So when other people go to sleep at night, she continues to sit because she feels so bright and so clear. And then suddenly, and, and, and slowly, as she sits there in that quiet and clear space, the what is this? Naturally come up. Naturally comes up. And then, finally after 20 days, Suddenly, this, in a way, thought shot through her. And, she, and it suddenly kind of says to her, originally, there is no head, there is no tail, where either of them could be anyway. And so, in a way, in that way, she has an insight into the question the master gave her. And after that, in a way, she continued with the what is it. That's what becomes of practice. And what is interesting as a sideline is that when she tells of her kind of, you know, the, the, her doubt becoming great and her doubt in a way bursting in that way, the abbot of the monastery nearby feels that he's going to be overdone, kind of overtaken by a nun. So he goes back to practice with great, the great master, so he's not beaten up by a nun. She's not better than he. <laughs> Because he said, you know, oh, I rarely met nuns with such great doubt and such great bursting. So, and to finish the story, I'd like to just read and to introduce what I'm going to talk about. One of our poems. So, because she, she wrote a few poems, which to me are very much expression of her awakening, of her practice. And this one is called Buddha Cannot See Buddha. Buddha cannot see Buddha sees Buddha. I cannot see I sees I. I saw the nature awakened to the way. What rubbish. <laughs> so that's the poem of uh, Song Yong Sunil. And so what I would like to look at a little now 
is this, all these things, especially in the Zen tradition, but in all Buddhist traditions. There is this talk about enlightenment, there is this talk of awakening, and we sit here day after day and we think, you know, what am I doing this for, you know? And there is kind of always a hope that something will happen. And in a way, what does happen? When we sit in meditation, I think, of course, there is just uh, the cultivating the concentration and the inquiry, but of course there is also certain experiences, certain things which happen, which are a little different than our generally ordinary life. I would say one of the things that can happen is what I would call mystical states. Is you sit in meditation, or maybe you're sitting in nature, and suddenly you have this experience, which is generally very bright, very powerful. For example, that suddenly you see that everybody has a Buddha nature. You, f- you, you know, without any doubt, that everybody, everywhere, all living beings have the Buddha nature, have the potential to be awakened, to be wise, to be compassionate. And you know that so much. At that moment, it is so bright. You have no doubt. You look at everybody, and they're all Buddhas. But again, this mystical state, like everything, are impermanent. So when they happen, they are so evident. But then they go. They might last 20 minutes, a day, two weeks, but generally they go after a while. And so in a way, after that, they're more like a memory. They're more like something you have tasted, some kind of faint taste. But the experience is not the same anymore. And so they can help you in looking at people in a different way. But often, although you might have that amazing experience, you might still have trouble with your neighbor that at that moment you cannot see as a Buddha whatsoever. And I think it's important to see that, to see that there are states that we experience and then they go. And they, in a way, leave this faint memory. Or they are what I would call meditative state. Again, I think that generally on a retreat, time to time this happens, where we feel very quiet and very clear. And in a way, at that moment, I would say meditation happens. We don't have to do anything. The meditation happens by itself. There is very little thought, and we're just very aware. But at that moment, there is this amazing quietness and clarity. It nearly feels a bit like buzzing, a little buzzing nearly. And again, this is my last. The problem with these states is often we, it happens, and we think, great, 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 awakening. You know, and straight away they disappear. <laughs> So generally, I would say, if this happens, to just be with it. As it is, to just be with it. And then when it disappears, then it just goes. But just one has experienced oneself in that way. That it was possible to feel that, to feel ourselves differently. But again, these are relatively rare. Sometimes they happen in daily life, but they're generally relatively rare. They're more often common to have this happen on a retreat because of the circumstances. We can go into the depths of the practice. 
And then there is what I would call insight. Like suddenly you see something you have never seen before. It's like suddenly something is very clear. You get an understanding of something. And I remember one time I was, when I was still sitting on the floor, cross-legged, and I had uh, some pain, and I really went into the pain. I really went with the questioning into the pain. And suddenly, the only thing I could see was emptiness. I could see the pain was not something fixed, solid. It was just empty. And I really had that experience of emptiness. And it kind of, you know, again, it lasted for a few days. But then it went. You know, and when I had pain again, I could not necessarily see it as empty. But the fact that I saw it once helped to go with the pain a little in a different way. But it doesn't mean that I will exactly have that experience again in the same way. Because you've seen it once, and after you will see it in a different way. It won't be, again, that newness won't be there. But again, it is something that you know, which can in a way feed, nurture your wisdom your understanding. Another thing that we can experience when we sit in meditation is what I would call the opening of the heart. That, you know, if you sit on a retreat, often at some point, at some moment, suddenly you sit here and you feel your heart opening. And the way I could describe it is that at that moment, you have no problem with nobody. Because generally there is always somebody somewhere. You know, that, well, I love all sentient beings, but <laughs> that one I'm not sure. <laughs> but it's very interesting to have that experience when in that moment your heart is open to the whole universe. But again, it is. It comes, it stays a while, and then it disappears. And then you start to find one or two persons to have trouble with. <laughs> again, but again, it has, you have experienced something different, a different way of being, a different way of looking at people. And so I think to me, one has to see that, of course, we can have this experience. But the meditation is not reducible to these experiences because, in a way, often these experiences does not make such a great difference in our daily life. And often you have people who have amazing experience in meditation, on retreats, and then they go back to their home and they're really lousy fathers or whatever. You know? So I think one has to be careful that in the Korea, in our family, uh, Zen family, they said that you, know, you have sudden uh, experience and then you have the gradual practice in the daily life so that the sudden experience can become organic, can become anchored, can be expressed in the daily life. And it's not just something in a way that happened on a retreat. And so for me, I would say actually what happens on meditation, which is more important than any of these other states that everybody really 
love and wants and wait for. I would say what one doesn't look at but is much more important as an effect, I would say is what I call the effect. The fact that you might even, if you have a bad meditation, because often people have good meditation or bad meditation, but even if you had a bad one, which means lots of thought and whatever, I would say that generally at the end of it, you feel different. Because you've stopped, you've tried to concentrate, you try to inquire, there is a release. There is something which happens. And to me, this actually is what makes the effect of meditation, why it works, that releasing. And that is interesting, that we can experience in daily life. And that's what makes a difference. Because often I meet people who tell me, I have meditated for 10 years, and my meditation has not changed very much. And so I say, but what about your life? And they say, oh yes, my life has changed very much, yes. (laughs) And again, I think... The problem is that what is more the expectation they have of what the meditation should be like, which I think has not changed because you cannot, I think, equate an abstract expectation to what happens when you're a living being in this moment. That can never equate. But I would personally suggest that even in their meditation, I would say they generally can concentrate a little more and inquire a little more, even if it is not as much as they want. That's another story. I think we will never meditate as much or as best as we think we should. This is too abstract. A living organism is very different. It's not an abstract picture. So in a way, the, the, the meditation, it's a kind of a whole thing. We have these various experiences. We also have this release. And as we cultivate, as we train, this is in a way what we bring to our life, what we try to cultivate, to practice, what also manifests in our life, of our wisdom, of our compassion. Then also I wanted to mention what for me is the symbols of awakening. Because, you see, you might think it's a little strange in terms of our kind of modern life, that every morning and every evening, you know, we bow. Three, we do our three bow, which I think is good exercise anyway. <laughs> and then we offer incense and water and the candle. And Stephen's explanation is more the Tibetan explanation. So I'll give the Zen explanation of why we do. Why do we offer this thing? Actually, we offer these things. Because they are symbols of awakening. If you take the candle, the candle is lit, and at the same time, the candle gives light. And as it gives light, it dissipates itself. So it's a symbol of selflessness, that it gives radiance while it dissolves itself. And also the thing about a, a candle is that it illuminates, it's illuminating for everybody else, and also it is illuminated within itself. So that actually awakening illuminates ourselves, but also makes us radiant, in a way, helps us to illuminate everybody around us. 
So that it's a share awakening. Then the incense, again the same idea. That the incense gives a fragrance, at the same time it disappears. Again, a symbol of selflessness, of giving of oneself, as one gives this fragrance. The other quality of the incense is that the fragrance is all pervasive. The incense does not give the fragrance and say, well, I'll go more that way. They look kind of more kind of chances of awakening there. You know, those over there, I'm not so sure. I will just go there. No. The incense go everywhere. It reaches out to everybody. And again, in awakening, the incense of pervasiveness, of wit, of reaching out to everybody. And then there is a symbol of water. And in the water, there is this symbol of two things. First, of reflection, that you have the water, and anything that comes above the water will just be reflected as it is just totally as it is, without picking and choosing, just exactly. And when the thing is gone, there will be nothing that remains. So this, again, this idea of creative encounter, totally reflecting and then letting go. But also for me, in the water, there is this symbol of fluidity, that actually the water adapts to everything. Whatever you put it in, it will take that shape. And so that in awakening, also that adaptability, that fluidity. Then if we look at awakening, again, generally we think of it, I think, as a state. Often we think it's kind of one day we sit in meditation and suddenly it's kind of like a bulb, a kind of, you know, instead of a 50 watt, it's going to be a thousand watt bulb will burst in inside ourselves and you know we'll shine from all orifices you know this will be <laughs> the great awakening but actually if you look in all the tradition what they say what awakening is not so much is amazing experience but more a process a process of dissolution and the dissolution of the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is what is awakening. This is why we're sitting on the cushion. Not just to have one experience, but to really dissolve greed, hatred, and delusion. That's why we meditate. And when we look at greed, when we look at wanting, you see, over time, I think the meditation helps us to work on that aspect of ourselves. That what happens when we want? What happens when we kind of want something, desire something, kind of, kind of lust for something, thirst for something? The one first thing we do is that we exaggerate its attractiveness. Generally, that's what we do. As soon as we crave for something, there is this aura around it. Like it's this amazing thing. And I need it yesterday. I mean, you, you feel it. You, and you really this feeling, if I don't have it, my life is finished. It's interesting that that thirst. And if we give in that thirst, this is the thing. The more we give in, 
the more we exaggerate. And then often the more we are unsatisfied because we get it and generally the pleasure, pleasure lasts, I don't know, 10 minutes, sometime a week, but after a while it's kind of, hmm, this did not resolve the problem of my life. And then also I think when the exaggeration goes through practice, there is still this, I like, I dislike. This, I think, is something very strong within us. Mm, I like them. Mm, I don't like them. It's very interesting. It's very immediate. I like, I dislike. And I think it is again, awakening is not about indifference. Awakening is about this kind of liking, which is often a lot arbitrary, disappearing, kind of encountering things in a different way. And the other day, I like to watch some, of, some program on TV. One is about psychology. There is this guy who comes and he helps people uh, with psychologically, with kind of cognitive behavior psychology. And he's really creative. I really, it's quite a rare program. But this time, the, the program was on this lady who shopped too much. She really was kind of a shop alcoholic. She was kind of just shopping and always... But she shopped for only kind of, uh, how do you say, latest fashion, trendy, expensive. Not cheap stuff. <laughs> expensive stuff. And the latest model, and she had them to have them in four colors, and she bought the same for her children, and, you know, this was her main activity. And so he kind of, you know, starting to talk to her and whatever, and then he started to have her do certain exercises. And one of the exercises was to go in her favorite shop, trendy and everything, with the latest fashion, and not to buy anything. And what was interesting is that she goes into the shop and he's with her, so she doesn't buy anything, and she comes out of the shop, and then she turns her head, kind of like backward, looking at what she leaves behind, and, says, oh. and in her eyes, you can see the thirst to buy. I mean, you can say, I want to buy this. And, 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 and she can't because he is with her and he kind of takes her off. <laughs> but to me, this was like, you know, this thirst. And of course, I mean, as he talked with her and everything, you know, they realized together that why she was, she was shopping since two years, since she stopped work. And, and, and then she, that was a way to make her worthy, and then he had all kind of wonderful exercise to change her vision of things. But to me, that was interesting, that kind of wanting, that thing, in a way, because thinking that if I have this, I will be happy. A lot of the greed, a lot of the wanting comes from that, that kind of, in a way, misthinking that this will give me happiness. Then there is a hatred. You know, when we awaken, the, in a way, the idea of awakening is that hatred goes. And if we look, when we hate something, when we dislike something, the same happens. We exaggerate its awfulness. It's so terrible. This is so awful. It's kind of like, there is kind of like a kind of energetic zone around the person, around the thing, which is like, you know, I mean, if you look, there is nothing. But actually, we nearly feel there is something. 
And actually, the meditation, the path, is for that exaggeration of what is negative to go. Not, not that we become kind of, you know, like everything is the same. No, we know if something is dirty or thing like this, but there is not this exaggeration of its awfulness. And also, I think, what goes to is that kind of being against something, disliking something. Often we so quickly, again, it's the same as with liking. Ah, I dislike this. You can, it's funny on retreat, where you know you don't talk to each other, you don't know each other, and then suddenly, I don't know, the way somebody looks or whatever, oh, I don't like them, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the end of retreat, you talk to them and they're perfectly nice people. That's why I like the silence. It's always kind of a revelation at the end of a retreat in different ways, the one you like, the one you dislike. But in a way, looking, that kind of, why? A lot of the time, what we dislike, I mean, there is so little, in a way, reason to really, you know, be there. And so in a way, it's kind of looking at that, at that exaggeration, that kind of, I would nearly say that unreasonable, that unnecessary disliking, pushing away, rejecting. <coughs> so in a way, we, in awakening, the idea is to creatively encounter, to creatively engage with whatever comes to us, whatever is in front of us. And there is, in a way, that fluidity, that spaciousness. It's not indifference. It's a different type of encounter. And to me, that was interesting about when I master Kuzan, my teacher in Korea. Because, I mean, we talk, but, you know, and I listened to his teaching and things like this, and he was uh, very wise. But what was interesting was his presence. That he was a little person. He was smaller than me, but actually you had the feeling he was actually much taller than he was. And also the feeling about him is that He was spacious. So he did not do anything, you know, flamboyant or any kind of magical power or anything. But what was interesting is that there was this spaciousness around him. And often I noticed, if if he called me to to translate a letter or do something for him, and if before I went, I had some anxiety or worry or obsession, when I was with him, it would all go. He seems to have kind of this force field of spaciousness. And I think this is a thing about awakening. In a way, because you don't grasp and get stuck and push and grasp, then in a way there is a spaciousness. And this is a spaciousness that actually you can share with others. That they can, in a way, come in together. That's why it is not indifference. It is what I would call a creative spaciousness. And then, of course, there is the delusion is to see, to really know for ourselves impermanence, unreliability, and conditionality. And what to me that does is actually to dissolve the fixation, to dissolve the limitation, where we become, again, more flexible, more creative. There is more movement. I think that's what this is more. We flow with things instead of kind of, in a way, fighting with them. And to finish, what I would like to look at a little is the awakening stages, what are kind of in the Zen tradition called the ten oxerding pictures. 
And so for each picture, there's a series of Chinese image, ink and pen, and you know, it's kind of called the Oxerdy. And the story is that you have this Oxerder, a little guy, and he's looking for his ox. And so each picture is about this story, this search. And you know, each picture, I think, represents our path to awakening, the process of awakening. So I just, you know, will go briefly through them. And then at the end of the talk, I'll put the, the picture on the board so we'll have an, you will have an idea of what they look like. So the first picture is the little ox herder looking lost. And it's called Searching the Ox. So he's... And I think this picture is about when we feel something is missing. In a way, we kind of feel we want something more. We kind of... Something is missing. We want to go beyond our limits. We not totally satisfied with what is in our life. I know from an early age, I was looking for something. I was wanting something. I could feel it, but I did not know why. This is this very strange feeling we have. Something is missing. You feel that you're not, in a way, totally kind of uh, expressing, manifesting your potential. You kind of look, look, but you don't know where to look. Then there is a second one, which is seeing the footprints. And then the little ox herder sees, oh, a few footprints. Ooh, the ox has been here. So again, you can kind of get a little of an idea. And I think that's where you kind of get, you know, spiritual traces, spiritual idea. I know for myself, when, you know, I would hear some kind of poetry, you know, some spiritual poetry, like, you know, the, the swallow flies through the sky. They leave no traces. <sighs> the bamboo shadow sweeps the, st- sweeps the steps. No dust is stirred. And in a way, you kind of, but it's just very kind of tentative. You kind of hear it and you think, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, you know, I could go this way. Maybe there, there is something. And then the next picture, the third one is where the oxerder just see, I, like, I love that picture, because he just sees the bottom of the ox, <laughs> the tail, <laughs> you know, among the branches. So he sees something. Can, ah, now it's tangible. Now, you know, I have, and I think this is when we, we, in a way, decide to find a practice. So it's not just about, you know, being spiritual and kind of exotic, and you think, yeah, yeah, you know, now I am going to really do something. You know, and you kind of try this and you try that. And I know for myself, when I was 18, I tried all kind of weird and wonderful things. But the, my best one was, you know, hyperventilating naked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of people. And I was saying, I didn't find it very effective. <laughs> so, in a way, we look around. I think we look around. There is a stage where we, we want to do something. And we try this, and we try that. And, and in a way, we have to try. Especially nowadays, there are so many different things. That, you know, you try this, you hear of that. Until I would say the next picture, which is called Catching the Ox. And in here, finally, the ox has caught the ox with a rope. And he's really holding on. I got it. 
I got it, but the ox doesn't want to be caught, so she she moves, and it really needs a lot of power to hold on to the ox. And to me, this picture is when finally we find one practice, and we decide, this is it. This I'm going to do. This makes sense. I think I can do it. Now I am going to do it. And I know for myself, you know, I thought, yeah, meditation, this is wonderful. Buddhism, yes, I love it. And then finally I started to sit down, you know, cross-legged and try to focus. And then it really was hard work. Because when you think about meditating, it's wonderful. When you read lots of Zen stories, they're wonderful. But when you sit in meditation, this is something else. This is hard work. Because the body is not used to it. The mind is not used to it. And so there is this kind of, you feel like you're fighting. First you fight with the body. You know, pain everywhere. And And finally the body settles. And then you fight with the mind. This is a thing. You think, oh yes, you know, when once, often that's what you think. You think once I don't have any pain, then I can meditate. Then you stop having pain, and then you have too many thoughts. You know, this is... In a way, the, the organism, kind of, you know, what is this? What, what, what am I doing here? And I think this is what this fourth picture catch. And then there is a fifth picture, which is called tending the ox. And then the oxer is still holding the ox with the rope, but it's very loose. And then they walk together very easily. And I think this is when the practice becomes more familiar. And then we can do it, we know what to do, we know how to do it, and we're more comfortable with it. We can do it. But we still have to be careful. Because time to time, again, we might have lots of thought, we might have lots of pain, but in general, it has become easier, more familiar. And then there is a sixth picture, which is riding the ox back home. And there, you have the ox herder on top of the ox, no rope, and he's playing the flute. And to me, this picture is very important, that this meditation is not all about doom and gloom. This is not about being serious. It's not about suffering all the time. But also, through this meditation, actually we become lighter. We become more creative. We start to open up to our potential. We start to not reduce ourselves, not, you know, we be so tense. And if we're less tense, if we're more stable, more open, then it becomes easier actually to be creative, to be light, to kind of, in a way, walk lighter. That's what was interesting with my teacher. He walked very lightly. It was funny how he was kind of a little tubby, small and tubby, but he walked. There was this lightness. And the way he looked and made jokes, he was kind of really very light. He could be very light, although he was his very great then master. And I often noticed with people who practiced a lot, there was this lightness. And I think that's what this is about. Then there is a seventh picture, and it's called Forgetting the Ox. The person rests alone. The ox has disappeared after all that work. And there is just a little guy who is just sitting, watching the moon. And to me, this is about meditation in everyday life. When meditation stops to be something special, but it's really something that, in a way, we incorporate in our life. 
And so there is not so much separation between being on retreat and being at home. It's just kind of flow together. Just everything becomes meditation. To listen to someone, to play with one's children, to work at the computer, whatever it is, we can bring meditation to it. And then there is Ace picture when the ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. And then there is just this circle. And this, I think, is a representation of emptiness, of this great release, this great degrasping, where we kind of let go of all these things we kind of hold on to and we think we need, but actually we don't. And there is this, in a way, this letting go, which can be expressed more in kind of feeling more open, can express in feeling more less kind of, uh, I would say, confused, agitated. Things become more spacious, more empty in a way, but not without things in it. I think this is important. There is this experience of emptiness, but it's a very creative emptiness. And then there is a ninth picture, which is called returning to the original place. And there, what you have generally some plum blossom or some bamboo, but something from nature. And I think it shows us that the meditation awakening does not stop at emptiness. Emptiness is not the end. But actually, the meditation continues, and we come back to the world in a different way. And actually, everything becomes more kind of like uh, clear, more bright. We're more present to it. And by being more present to the whole world, by in a way being less self-centered, because we're not self-centered so much anymore, then we can be in the world in a different way. We see it in a different way. We relate to it in a different way. And at that level, we can learn from the world. We can learn from everything we encounter. And then the last picture is called Appearing in the Marketplace with Gifts. And then the little boy reappears with a big kind of monk, kind of a little kind of, uh, with a, kind of a little ragged, and with a big bundle, a big bundle full of gifts. And so it shows us that then the path again continues. The awakening is also about returning to the marketplace returning to daily life and opening our heart in a skillful way. That the meditation is not just for ourselves. The awakening is to share with everyone so that we can serve them, we can be there for others. So, my time is up. Thank you. And I have two announcements. One is tomorrow morning, Tuesday morning, people would like to clean the hall. So if the hall could be empty from 8.15 to 9.15, and people who meditate here at that time, maybe they could sit outside if it does not rain. Also, we would very much appreciate, we very much appreciate when people arrive on time for the talks or for the meditation. And now there is a little time for questions or comments? Yes? Do you think since women suffer from PMT that it's um, harder for them 
Can you repeat the beginning of the question? Since women suffer from premenstrual tension, mm -hmm. do you think it's more difficult for them to meditate than for men? I don't think so. I mean, this is, I think, one of the legend. You know, traditionally, this is one of the legend. You know, because women have a, a premenstrual and menstrual thing, then, you know, they cannot practice as well. But personally, I don't think it matters. That I don't think it matters your condition. I think, in a way, we... Each of us meditates with our various past conditions and present conditions together. And so, you know, you could have men who actually don't have a great energy, who don't feel, you know, so fired up to meditate. And then you could have a woman who actually might have much more energy and more fired up. And then actually it would become the same at the level of energy. I don't think it matters. I think one has to be careful that, you see, because everybody has their own different obstacle. I think we cannot meditate just when everything is fine. If we only meditate when we have the perfect body, the perfect health, the perfect mind, heart, and everything, then I don't think we will ever meditate. So, personally, I think it just, we do with the conditions we find ourselves in. You see, and it just depends. I can, no, I, I mean, this retreat, I am, I should not say that, but I am what I would call very well. <laughs> I don't have any major pain. <laughs> but I can remember retreat, leading retreat here, when I was really in great pain either with my stomach or with my leg or what not. No, and you can never know. You can never know the condition in which you will be in when you do a retreat. So to me, I would not see this as an obstacle. I would say each of us have different obstacles at different times. And that in a way, I would encourage anybody to meditate, no matter what, in the way they can, and if it's too difficult, I would say, well, you can always meditate lying down in bed. And that generally that doesn't require too much kind of uh, less energy than, of course, sitting up in meditation. Um, I've experienced um, a loss of self in meditation, but never in the way it's described. It's always just simply the way you feel just before you drop off to sleep. I've never experienced the loss of myself and remained alert. So I'm not sure quite how you do that. Well, you see, I am not sure. You see, again, what do we mean? What do we mean? I think, again, is what we mean. Personally, I would not say that at any time you lose yourself. You might have an experience of emptiness, but there is still somebody experiencing that emptiness. If we talk of samadhi, this is different. You see, you can have what I would call samadhi experience, where you just go for concentration, where you can get in, in very deep state, where then, in a way, there is a loss of consciousness. 
of self-consciousness consciousness altogether. But personally, I am not really interested in that. Because if there is no consciousness, well, so what? You know? I mean, you know, it doesn't help you to do the kind of, you know, cook or clean or do whatever. So, I mean, of course, you can do it if you want, but personally, I am not so interested in that. So I would say, if we leave this experience aside of great, deep, samadhi experience, I would say if you cultivate concentration and inquiry together, then what you experience is what I would call a release, a non-grasping. So the, there is still a person who experiences a non-grasping. So at that level, the self does not go. There is still someone sitting there. And that's why sometimes people come and they say, oh, I was empty. <laughs> you know, and they're very frightened. But I say, but you're still here, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, you did not dissolve in the puddle. <laughs> but you feel differently. Why do we feel differently? Because we don't grasp. So it's not that the self goes. I would say what goes is a self-grasping. But the self is still there. You know, when you don't become somebody else. So yes, I would... That's what I can say to that one. Good. Uh, uh, Just ask one. Um, to catching the bull in, this, in the story of the ten stages, yeah. can that also be applied to one's own breath during meditation? Or when you feel like you, your breath is going this way and this way, and then it settles and you feel that you're sitting with it, Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, is, that to me seems a little bit like sitting with the bull in the story of the ten stages. Do you think this, do those ten stages also have that kind of instant internal meaning as well as over one's, the course of one's life? Actually, what I forgot to say is that personally I think that these stages are a process. So instead of being, often we see the process like that, personally I would see these stages like a spiral. And I think often we come back to the same place, but in a different way. So in a way, I think you can apply it for, for just even a, a sitting, as you say. For just a sitting, you can go through, maybe not all the ten stages, but you can go through some of them. Yes, definitely. So it's not just to see over one life. I would say you can see it, yes, over one sitting. You can see it over one retreat. You can see it. It's just kind of to show that we can go through these different stages, and I think we also come back to some at a different place. It's not that, oh, the first one is gone. I think at times we feel the meditation, maybe after 10 years, is a little stale. And then we think, again, something is missing in the practice, and then you look for something which gives a little more brightness. So I think, yes, we come back again and again to these stages, and also in one sitting, I would say, yes, you can experience it. Good, I must let you...